Thank you for tuning in to Conversation 4 of the second anthology of the Lucid Dreaming podcast. This series of conversations with contemporary moving image makers and artists is hosted by author and film curator Pamela Cohn. In the predicament of a pandemic, we're recording remotely, so please excuse the creaks of personal realms. Through each episode of the anthology, we explore the space between forms of seeing and knowing the world around us, through reference and layering, through correspondences on and behind the screen. So move your dinky stereo a little bit closer, hug it with your lobes, and let's begin. Hello, dreamers. Welcome to the Lucid Dreaming Podcast. I'm Pamela Cohn. In this episode, I'm delighted to be in conversation with Yasmina Sibich. As has been the challenge for me to distill every maker's body of work in this anthology, Yasmina is another artist extremely hard to define. Over the course of the last 15 years or so, her output of writing, performance, installation, and moving image work is prodigious. There's a German word, Gesamtkunstwerk, that broken down into its components means total artwork and can be translated into the idea of melding in all the forms of art as theater. This term aptly describes Yasmina's immersive installations, which are realized on a very grand scale, beautiful and artful scenarios of mirroring. She is the ringmaster of her own big top. Her newest show, called Foundation of Endeavor, just opened at the Museum of Contemporary Art Ljubljana in her native Slovenia on the 1st of September. One more cycle of work that is representative of how deep and wide this artist explores the themes that obsess her. It usually starts with one seminal image or device. For Endeavor, the image is a portrait of what she calls one of Slovenia's most hotly contested national emblems, the Lipizzan or horse, the only breed developed in Slovenia. A bit over a decade ago, the Lipizzaner 508 Neapolitano Tais XL, which sounds like a preciously rare classic car, was presented as an official state gift to Muammar al-Qaddafi just two years before the Libyan military revolutionary's brutal assassination. Yasmina writes that this literal embodiment of the Trojan horse, a gift given with less than pure motives in this case is a form of cultural diplomacy, reminds us how easily culture can become not only a pawn in soft power strategies, but also complicit in the production of that culture's ideology. All of Yasmina's explorations circle back to this complex but pervasive concept. Yasmina was born in Ljubljana in 1979 and works in film, sculpture, performance, and installation to explore this idea of soft power how political rhetoric is deployed through art and architecture, particularly examining how cultural production is used by the state to communicate certain principles and aspirations through unfolding complex entanglements of art, gender, and political power. On the world stage, most certainly, but particularly as it pertains to the embedding of the jingoistic branding many countries under the thumb of a strong leader experience. Gathering together symbols and iconographies, ones that exist and ones that she and her collaborators recreate in various forms, Yasmina's projects synthesize gesture, stagecraft, and reenactment in the most gorgeous ways imaginable. 
Every body and object inhabiting these universes are pristine in their beauty, from the actors and dancers to her stage sets, from her collaborations with choreographers and musicians to costume design, the artworks on the walls, and the grand architectural wonders she often is allowed to film in. There are also the reinvigorated and repurposed snatches of speech from primary sources that turn into scripts consisting of an amalgam of texts, speeches from U.S. President Ronald Reagan, Prince Charles, Josep Broz Tito, Benito Mussolini, Margaret Thatcher, Nikita Khrushchev, among other seminal cultural architects. Each work is usually presented in three-act story arcs, or trilogies, each piece extrapolating and collating and colliding into a heady admixture of the dissection of stagecraft, multi-layered spielräume, or playrooms. The ways in which she takes liberties in overriding and parsing certain sources slyly creates shifting meanings that highlight all of the uncertainties and untruths of history with a capital H, especially in the gendering of the past, creating a whole new vocabulary of allegory whilst decoding the reliable mechanisms of state power. There's much to talk about with this exciting filmmaker and artist, so let's get started. Welcome to the Lucid Dreaming Podcast, Yasmina. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you. So let's start with what you've built and staged in, staged in Ljubljana just, just days ago. Um, I, I'd love for you to describe a bit of what you're currently exploring in Foundation of Endeavor through these symbols of the batons used in former Yugoslavia's relay of youth. Um, this way in which you continue to explore the way you can extrapolate a nation's carefully crafted rhetoric, its, its aspirations on the world stage, as you've done in, in various phases in much of your recent work. Um, you, were, you were born just one year before, before Tito's death in 1980, and you know this country you were born into suddenly is no longer there, but it's a place, obviously, that stayed so vivid in your imagination as you rebuild and reinvigorate, you know, all of these um, past events. Um, so if you could just start us off in describing the show, you know, what it felt like. Um, I'm also interested to know a little bit as well about your journey from conceiving these really big multivalent explorations and the actual staging of them. Yeah, wonderful. Um, great, great platform of a question, uh, which really encompasses, I think, very precisely, um, quite a number of my concerns. Mm -hmm. Now to start, I guess the foundation of Endeavor is a really good place to start. So this is my um, latest exhibition project. It's a show which opened just last week in Ljubljana at the Museum of Contemporary Art, uh, Metelkova in the center of Ljubljana. And it's, I guess, sort of my first uh, post-COVID <laughs> exhibition, <laughs> which also um, obviously um, had to take into account a changed world dynamic. So it's a project that at its heart has a film that I've been working on for the past year and a half. And it's a film project that looked at culture as a form of a political gift throughout history. 
So I was quite interested in looking uh, sort of through the seep of uh, historical ready-mades and I was looking for instances of this notion of political gifts of culture and how they have created the, the contemporaneity in which we find ourselves today. And um, I was sort of looking specifically at moments of European crisis and, and sort of the, the Western crisis that was then kind of coming on board with sort of European wars. Um, and obviously this situation now um, strikes really close to home. So Slovenia has been one of the last countries to join the recent upheaval of right-wing nationalism mm. together with Hungary, Poland, Serbia, Czech Republic and so on. So I effectively entered my own country, um, finding it extremely foreign and hostile with a project that was supposedly investigating and opening up the legacies of potential solidarity. Uh, furthermore, the exhibition itself is in a museum that backs onto the Ministry of Culture of Slovenia, which has been heavily hit by protests of the entire culture worker force of the country. Um, so we have had now protests for about, the, I think, 21st, 22nd consecutive week. Um, demonstrations in the center aimed against the government, against the Ministry of Culture because of um, the recent happenings and effectively cancellations and overwritings of the constitution. And Europe is kind of just observing silently. Mm -hmm. um, we are supposed to hold the presidency uh, of, of the European Union as well, and that is also highly problematic. So my exhibition really kind of has to be uh, read within this context. And it, I would say it's quite perverse that the thematic so um, kind of properly fits the, the current um, political uh, conditioning, it kind of fits it like a glove even, I would say. So as I mentioned, the film, which is at the center, was quite a large uh, research heavy project where I really wanted to bring together sole um, examples of political gifting within the film. So from the locations where it was shot, from the script constructed, characters combined. So every single moment or instance kind of came from, as I said, these kind of potential moments of solidarity or enticement of society to enter into a dialogue between cultural production and national or transnational politics. And obviously, um, during the lockdown, I was unable to continue filming. So me and my team were kind of sitting down and asking ourselves, how can we translate these quite um, kind of uh, large scale and quite uh, intense um, kind of production moments into something that would be feasible? because we, we don't like to stop, especially because the project was so um, kind of properly positioned. We, we really wanted to continue its investigation and sentiment. So the two kind of bodies of work that sprung um, from the film that inhabit the foundation of Endeavor within the exhibition are two different installation settings. They're both formed from, again, a number of gifts, uh, the first one, I would say, um, is perhaps the one that kind of relates mostly to also this, this, this rethinking of Europe and its legacies and its potential for transnationalism. So it's an installation which is built from two sets of donations to the League of Nations. So we're talking about late 1930s. 
So the League of Nations obviously um, kind of forms uh, after or, or from um, this desire to stop the next world war after the First World War. And of course, it fails miserably. So I was working with, with the archive of the League of Nations, which is held in Geneva at the Palace of Nations in the United Nations. Um, and I was trying to look for these sort of traces of these attempts at um, constructing its um, scenography. So this was a time when Europe was so mortally afraid of nationalism that as it was constructing this effectively, what was to become a parliament of the world, they were extremely careful in not selecting any artistic, architectural or design position from any individual which would or could be uh, thought of as nationally specific. So I was quite interested in kind of looking through uh, these remnants of, um, of, of kind of like the fear or the relevance at the same time of what politics and diplomacy was ascribing to design, art and architecture. And um, as I mentioned, the two, the two series of the nations that I thought most uh, properly presented this, this conundrum were a series of donations of musical compositions that were made to the building itself. Mm. And they were made actually when the palace closed its doors, which was really early on because it was only about finished for the time of, of the war breaking out. So this is this kind of black humor of, of the entire project. Um, and so this was a series of donations of only uh, anthems and marches that more than anything, it was um, sort of, um, it was mostly, um, it was mostly amateur um, artists or amateur composers that were donating these, these, these compositions. And it felt this was like a really wonderful metaphor because the, um, the compositions were entirely the ones that you need for a start or a death of, of a nation state. So when a nation state is birthed, you need an anthem. When it dies and it goes to war, you need a march. So this was kind of the first body of these donations that I really wanted to do something with. And moreover, they were never realized. They were, they're not great, you know, amazing pieces of music. But um, as for what they are, they're amazing um, sort of, kind of historical remnants of this idea of, um, of a donation um, to an idea of a peace project, to an idea of solidarity, transnational solidarity. And the second uh, part of donations that this installation then worked in was a series of donations with a proposition for the flag of the League of Nations, which again was never realized. The League never had a flag because the, uh, the, 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 the body, the, um, the foundation there, did not believe in choosing a single emblem because it would potentially have a national um, kind of foregrounding. And really, when we look at these emblems and these propositions for the flags, we even have swastikas in between. We have some are extremely sort of spiritualist, but it's, you know, it's that kind of 1930s space of kind of quite strong uh, graphic and visual identity. So these two sets of donations uh, meet together in the, the first room into which uh, the audience comes into. And the flags are painted on top of snare drums, of snare drum skins, uh, on which then during the opening, uh, two, two women were playing um, these marches, so these donated hymns. 
So it's kind of like a meeting part of these two, um, of these two sets of donations, but like really enacted in this sort of red, red velvet space, which was filled with, you know, red velvet curtain, red carpet. So kind of the, a merger between the statecraft and stagecraft, two spaces of political authority that usually flags are displayed at, or, you know, the audience, the kind of art audience is um, sort of expected or thought of having this sort of immersive um, theatrical experience. Um, and the second room that also spanned from the film itself was a room with a series of uh, photographic portraits of objects, of two sets of objects specifically, um, that come from very different conceptual registers and time. But both of them, again, speak of these attempts at bridging nationalism through um, sort of endorsing uh, objects with this almost magical power to heal nationalist tensions. Uh, the first set of objects is a series of batons, uh, relay batons um, that were carried through Yugoslavia during Tito's years. And this was effectively probably the best illustration of Yugoslav's attempt in kind of healing this, um, this kind of um, artificial body, so artificial nation state, because of course Yugoslavia was a multi-ethnic, multinational state. And Yugoslav diplomacy was extremely clever in using culture as a vehicle to, uh, for connectivity to create this new aesthetic, scenographic space of this multi-ethnicity. So they were really working hard in sort of bridging um, potential nationalisms, ethnic specificity within, within this um, depiction of a, of, a, of, a, um, of a scenographic spectacle. And the, um, the youth relay with these batons was effectively a run, so a race or a run through the country um, really connecting together all parts uh, of Yugoslavia by young people who were, uh, some of them were athletes, some of them were peasants, some of them were teachers. And of course, you know, they were selected, selected again by, by you know, by the, the, the you know, the, the political authority of the state for their achievements in the nation. And they were passing these batons between each other until the final um, lap, which ended by this um, passing of the baton to President Tito in a very obviously symbolic act. Now, and this is also quite interesting because obviously these batons, they are quite phallic objects and they were, they're almost like, it almost feels like a sewing of this body politic and the nation state or the, you know, the multi-ethnic multi nation state together with this symbolic object. And I wanted to work with these batons for quite a long time. And they're such loaded objects for us, for, for anybody coming from former Yugoslavia. But at the same time, they are incredibly cryptic for any international audience. So this is perhaps a really good point kind of in terms of the potential problematic of my projects that I have been constantly facing because we don't have an art market. You know, former Yugoslavia really is quite cryptic. In, um, in the kind of um, describing or kind of um, making universal certain problematics that we deal with that were not the war, for example. So 
um, this kind of felt like the right moment in time to bring them out. So it's, it's, a, um, it's a series of portraits of these batons, but they're not photographed in their own right. They are actually photographed in a style of a vanitas. Um, um, so a vanitas that kind of reminds us of, you know, in this case, not of the death, but the reminder of this potential solidarity or these ideals that can be lost. So they're populated with insects, they're photographed in a completely black void, and there's little bugs and beetles that kind of crawl over them. And as a second part to this series of objects comes the second register, I would say, of these sort of symbolic objects. And that is a series of, um, of roses that are named, they were bred and named after the founding fathers of the idea of connected Europe. So these were roses named after Konrad Adenauer, Sandro Pertini, uh, de Gaulle, uh, Helmut Kohl, we have Winston Churchill as well, uh, and so on. And I was, because I'm quite uh, obsessed with these ideas of taxonomy and giving names um, to animals and plants, based on this idea of donating. Um, so donating a name also means to give love, so to give, you know, sort of a, to, to, to ascribe to, to this ideal that, you know, somebody or something was representing. And, you know, with, with, with roses, it's interesting because they're always, they're always tied to political authority um, since the conception of kind of cross-pollination. So uh, this idea of kind of breeding new, new breeds. And it, this all, uh, started effectively with uh, Napoleon's Josephine and, and her gardener. So they were the first ones who kind of started to make this kind of new breeds, new species. And the idea was, you know, to make a nicer flower, better smelling flower, or maybe a rose that's not so prone to disease. So these European founding fathers um, were also paradoxically, they're not so much in, um, they're not really requested anymore. So many of these roses are commercially not available. So this project effectively fell um, into the time of the pandemic. So as we were trying to find these roses and these breeds, um, the borders were shut. So we, we were effectively smuggling uh, European founding fathers across closed borders. So it was kind of a really, I, I don't think I've ever had such a poetic project really <laughs> within the kind of whole kind of grand scheme of things and really became quite a kind of personal search for a potential of a continuation of kind of quite an enhanced political practice back into the studio, back into, you know, what we could be operating with during this lockdown, during, you know, kind of different countries dealing with uh, artistic practices in different ways, loads of them not supporting, um, not supporting the production, not supporting the artists in question. Um, and as we all know, especially film has been really, really heavily hit. So this was somehow the thinking behind the entire project. And it's a project that kind of is a bit of a rolling snowball, I would say. So I tend, because these projects, they are quite big and dense, but I tend to work on them for a number of years with different institutions. So in every single institution, we can pose new questions. So we, we really, you know, I say we, it's not a role, we have worked with a really lovely team of people from cinematographers to writers to photographers, uh, curators. And the idea really is to kind of look specifically within the territory where we are, um, where we are working, what are the pertinent, the most kind of fragile questions 
that this quest into looking at soft power and you know instrumentalization of culture should be asking at that point of time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well in in line with with exactly that i mean i'm i'm sure it varies widely and and perhaps has changed over the course of time as your collaborations shift and change between different entities but in your case in particular this this relationship between you the artist and and the curators and commissioners of all of these institutions and spaces where your works find a home. Um, I'd love to know about those kinds of collaborations because it's interesting to me the way in which you address these very themes in your work. And I'm just curious to know how that might translate. I'll, I wanna read something back to you, your own words from this, from the wonderful Nada Modograph. Um, when you were talking with with Katia and Constanza, um, and you say the art markets drive toward geopolitical exoticism of artistic practices that come from a different ideological spaces is something implicitly inherent to the very production of exceptionality and difference, which are the values intrinsic to any artwork and essential for it to arouse and maintain its aura. My continuation of the research and the reworking of these concepts is an investigation of whether it is possible at all to decolonize the art sector of its geopolitical exotic pull, which is a great expression, as well as a testing ground for Althusser's thesis that visual art is part of the cultural ideological apparatus of the state, that its operation relies consistently on the mechanisms of ideology. And obviously there's so much to unpack here, but I'm, I'm really curious to know how you talk about this in the context of the sorts of massive commissions that you get and how those entities, let's say the expectations of those entities and your own expectations of what your research and your perhaps even wandering around these spaces and conceptualizing, you know, all of these moving parts that will express, you know, a very specific ideal of a very specific place and time. Um, You know, nothing is actually built for that you know it's almost like you're creating in in you know this this antithesis of what the art world how the art world expects to absorb right how the art world and maybe even the art spectator expects to come to to works that talk about very specific themes and as i'm listening to you talk about endeavor i mean it's very apparent that the it's it's the more granular aspects of what you're doing that really make the difference you know that really um it's sort of this abiding dedication you know to the things that may be steamrollered in a sense um uh, in 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 these larger contexts of of museums and gallery spaces and all of these grander you know state buildings that you film in um could you parse that a little bit in terms of your own experience making work over i think it's the last 15 years now or maybe longer um that you've been making this kind of this multi-pronged um these multi-pronged productions yeah i guess 
I think, you know, this, this geopolitical exoticism and the problematic of it really for me started with, with um, coming to study at Goldsmiths. Mm, um, and, you know, this, this whole, it was kind of really my first meeting with, you know, this, um, it was kind of like somebody putting a mirror to you, really kind of saying, well, no, you know, we really want you to look at yourself and find, you know, every single aspect of difference that you can. And that's, that's what is kind of expected from you in terms of, you know, this kind of conglomerate of, of the art market of, or in terms of like the difference of the, of the viewer who doesn't understand your language. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, prior to Goldsmiths, I did the Academy in Venice, which was no, not the best school in, in, on the planet. But, um, but what it did give us, um, there was, so there was a number of us from former Yugoslavia studying there because our academies were very, very ancient. And, you know, it was still expected from you to, you know, do charcoal drawings. Um, but, but this idea of these different audiences and also of a different service of art um, became quite quickly apparent to me. And I guess a lot of us went into the art because we were interested in this legacy or a potential legacy of the relationship between art and citizens. And again, Yugoslavia maybe had a very specific um, um, situation after the Second World War. I'll, and I'll go back to this again because it's not, I guess, my, my, my kind of take on Yugoslavia is not that I'm so interested in Yugoslavia per se because of I am from there, mm-hmm. but because I find it as an amazing um, kind of pregnant body of possibilities for reading of how culture can be used or not used and what can it uh, achieve. I mean, similarly, I was working with a Weimar Germany situation, with the Danish modernism in the 40s. So I do tend to kind of look at different contexts, but just to to kind of stay with Yugoslavia a little bit. So what happened after the Second World War? uh, So Tito and Stalin had a break in 1948. um, And after that, um, Yugoslavia really had to go as far away from socialist realism as possible. So the politicians kind of, well, obviously they, they didn't know how they wanted this aesthetic space to look, but they knew how they didn't want it to look. And this is, again, going back to film. This is, you know, what, what a, a producer wants, you know, when they take on your film. They, you know, they, they know what they want when they see it, you know. Um, and again, this is this difference. This is this uniqueness, this, this voice, you know. And um, former Yugoslavia, again, had, um, had this relationship, you know, had this kind of non-written contract between the citizen and, and the art and the state, which kind, which kind of functioned, you know? So, you know, artworks would be purchased. There would be um, sort of special um, statuses where artists would get uh, pension plans paid for. Uh, when we're following discussions for um, public works, for example, in the parliament, the, the depiction of the frescoes in the newly built parliament in the 50s, the politicians are discussing for how long an artist can go to the seaside to get inspiration because the theme was uh, seaside. Uh, you know, so it's this kind of really um, quite a, it's an exchange basically. And Yugoslavia was kind of very, very um, strong in world expositions in the 20th century. And they were always choosing art and architecture to foreground this presentation of, uh, of, of the social system, because that's what Yugoslavia always wanted to show rather than, you know, um, sort of achievements in technology and so on. So, you know, culture really was sort of a partner there. And then, you know, as I came to Goldsmiths, this sort of coincided with 
um, reappropriations of modernism, <laughs> not only in former East, but also, you know, um, so this is kind of, I guess, kind of early 2000s, right? So there was all of a sudden loads of this sort of, you know, especially reappropriation of modernism in sculpture, uh, kind of everything was full of it. But, you know, what was happening with these kind of reappropriations was that, the, you know, only the form was taken and the form was only kidnapped as, as a model. And the essence of all these modernist projects was completely ignored. And this was really happening all over the place. And it really dawned on me that, you know, this, this, this conceptualization of the art market like that really did not want to spend time discussing the content. And this felt extremely problematic, especially for um, parts of the world where official histories even were not delving into these um, into these formats. So in case of Yugoslavia, you know, the, the modernist architecture from Yugoslavia was a really good case study. So, you know, we did not, our institutions did not have the money to do it. Uh, we had to effectively wait until the MoMA exhibition, uh, who kind of, you know, brought this together about two years ago. Um, so this is where artists kind of took on board, um, you know, sort of roles of really working with the archives. And then the other thing that, you know, I kind of had as a, as a kind of big problem of this sort of, you know, geopolitical exotic pool was that, in, I mean, it, it, this was kind of happening all over the place, you know, so like, you know, my, my colleagues from Goldsmiths who would have a great grandmother who would be Indonesian and they would be Dutch, they would be, um, you know, talked into using more flowers in their paintings. And it was just, I mean, you could not make it up. And, you know, and I th still think Goldsmiths is a fantastic school, but, you know, this was a specific um, kind of uh, recipe of, you know, just really, you know, reiterating the system's own code of messaging. And then also, you know, I grew up in socialism, you know, so I did not understand, um, you know, the kind of the, the London um, setup for uh, distribution and consumption, consumption of art. And it took me 20 years to, to understand it, you know, <laughs> because it's extremely anti-European, I would say, you know, it's very, very specific. But this, you know, this, this, this conceptualization of when does art start to work with citizens? When does it start not to serve only the authority, either it's the religious or political or aristocratic authority? And, you know, we have to remind ourselves that this is quite a recent thing. I mean, recent in terms of, you know, civilization. So this is Rousseau, you know, this is the social contract. So, you know, this relationship of kind of, you know, reaching out to, you know, to other audiences than the ones who supposedly feed you in terms of commissions is quite recent. I mean, recent enough to, have the potentiality of its permutation. And I guess I really liked that sentiment of these, you know, moments, either it's Weimar Germany or former Yugoslavia, when artists and architects really had the kind of free hand to suggest new potentialities, you know? Mm -hmm. And this, again, kind of through the rear view mirror of history, you know, is I don't I don't consider it necessarily as a kind of like lost cause, but as a as an attempt at, at, um, at like a positive resolution or a suggestion. So I always kind of go back to these, to these instances and that's also how I try to guide my projects. So yes, I do work with big teams of people, um, ideally in collaboration with institutions and in exchange with curators, but I have also been observing um, year, like, year after year, there is less 
interest in development from the side of institutions mm -hmm. and the time that curators can put into these kind of projects. Mm -hmm. So uh, I always say that my practice uh, freaks people out. It freaks institutions out because it's really, you know, it's complex, but I will always say it's not complicated because, you know, I'm kind of unpacking all these stories now for you, but when the audience comes into my exhibitions, I don't expect them to know the whole story. It really is about entering um, an immersive experience or a theatrical play where, you know, the, the artworks become props to facilitate, to entice, to seduce, to perhaps suggest certain readings or break normal flows of events. But it really is supposed to be a playground for the audience. We make claims neither for life nor dying, neither for society nor the individual, neither for what is natural nor for what is supernatural. No need to be poetic. No need to hypnotize. Nobody has to be anything. I, I would love to hear more about your your relationships as well with your creative collaborators, with 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 those members of your team um, who are helping to create that spectacle. Literally, you know, most importantly, really, in the sense of beauty, in the sense of the costumes, in the sense of dance and movement, in the sense of the theatricality of it all um and and when you sort of enter these like i'll talk about you know maybe the gift in particular um and and this you know french communist party headquarters palace and the palace in geneva both both buildings themselves already take us into some sort i mean at least for me into some sort of dream state in a way um they're so evocative and so representative of you know even old hollywood film sets you know and this way in which you immerse yourself in a world that maybe existed or maybe still does exist somewhere but it's also a world entirely made up of someone's imagination and um this way in which all of it sort of coalesces um, where your script and the dancers movements and you know how the bodies are represented and move in space um, all sort of really create i mean that is like 
the gift itself. I mean, the gift is the subject, but the gift is also, you know, the creation of almost this, like, I think of it as a three ring circus, you know, um, where everywhere you look, everywhere your attention goes, there's something enticing happening. And no, you know, it's not always, you know, it's not always understandable in a logical sense, but I think the way in which these all of these things coalesce is is really where that magic happens. Um, so maybe you could talk about a specific example of that, you know, in in how you talk about your your visions and and how you sort of correspond with dancers and set designers and your camera person and your team. Um, to sort of aesthetically represent all of these very, very complex um, ideas. Yeah, so I guess um, it might be quite a strange thing, but the, the, the start of the project that kind of leads into kind of the idea of its final form and aesthetics, actually, I leave it to develop quite organically. Mm -hmm. I say organically because when when I'm interested in in an idea in an idea, it might be extremely you know specific. It might be oh, I've heard somewhere that in this and this year there was such and such a performance, and then I go into the archives and I look for it. And you know, with archives, you just don't know what you're going to find. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is, you know, depending on the question, the archive will give you a different answer. So you know, the gift specifically started with just a brainstorm with a really dear friend and a wonderful curator, Alessandro Vincentelli from Baltic, who curated my, my solo exhibition there two years ago. Mm -hmm. And this was actually after the Aarhus show um, where uh, Juliana Engberg invited me. So I always joke, I say, you know, because I, I do tend to get invited to reignite somebody else's cultural capital. Um, and, you know, the City of Culture is, for example, a great case study of that you know when kind of like artists are kind of um, kind of flown in into the local contexts to work with quite highly specific uh, problematic or instances because that's kind of where the funding is going so it's already per se like an extremely loaded and symbolic space and um juliana is an amazing curator so she's she was just really really she was totally understanding where, where we, we wanted to go. And um, after all these discussions about, you know, also how artistic practices of the present are used or utilized in, you know, if you have a clever curator, they're, you know, they're kind of progressively utilized as kind of weapons of critical thought. And if you don't, they can really, you know, you know, a really bad thing can happen to, to your own practice. So it's kind of, you know, it can really quite backfire. Um, so all of this really kind of brought me back to this, this, this kind of um, just the permutation of, you know, what is, the, uh, what is our responsibility as uh, critical content or cultural producers today? You know, how much do we have to be um, sort of, how much do we have to understand of the meaning and the political games of the funding bodies of the institutions and so on, you know, or can we just say, well, you know, we just want the project to exist and we're a bit turning the blind eye, which I personally don't think we can because the world is really becoming so polarized. But then I also understand that you kind of you have to pick your battles because, you know, if we would all be super politically and ethically correct, we probably would all just stop making things and just make jam. 
Um, and uh, so we had this chat with Alessandro after we opened uh, Orhus, and he was saying, oh, but there's this building and you should look at it. And we just brought this, this um, Niemeyer space up on the screen. And this was, this was phenomenal for me because I just knew the story. I did not, I never really popped. I, I knew of this, the building and I kind of, you know, saw some of its representations, but I never properly looked at its interior. But I knew the story that in the late 60s, um, the French Communist Party had this schism within itself because, you know, it wasn't sexy anymore. It was losing power. There were the student protests and you had the schism uh, between the kind of Russian and the French um, sort of part of it, kind of trying to kind of gain little bits of more control. And this coincided with Niemeyer having to flee or deciding to flee Brazil after the right wing coup. And the story goes that he saw the tanks driving on the boulevards that he, he made and, you know, his heart broke and he's like, I'm going to go to Europe. And supposedly this was a gift, this space that he, he, he constructed for the, for the French communist headquarters, um, which then through our, uh, through our investigation proved that in the interviews we were carrying out, it proved that actually it was not a gift because in exchange he got uh, an atelier on Champs-Élysées um, and again, you know, all these things kind of started kind of coming in, kind of saying, well, you know, how can the culture itself be a gift? Is it always a Trojan horse or, you know, how, how, how do all these things function? And then, uh, then I started kind of working again in a similar way to, to how I tend to work out these sort of more architectural projects, which is to really look at the architecture. So I, you know, I do work mostly with film and architecture and, I'm quite obsessed with these spaces of political power um, and their architecture because they are extreme cinematographic devices, effectively. So they just, they guide the camera. So when you're asking, you know, how, how do these decisions get made? Again, I'll go like, I'll tell you that it's, it's, it is really extremely organic. So, you know, we do a recce, we look at the situation. Obviously, we have to get the permits, which is usually half of the battle or, you know, 75% of it. Um, but it's it's really fundamentally this idea of like really listening, uh, you know, quite astutely to this the suggestion of the architecture itself and how does it guide the view, how does it guide the speaker or the viewer, and how it effectively functions as a tower of control, but almost also at the same time as this kind of modernist boudoir. Um, in terms of you know, Beatrice Colomina uh, wrote a really wonderful essay on that you know, on this idea of architecture that is at the same time, you know, a pedestal to be seen, but also uh, really takes on board all these different permutations of um, kind of behavioral patterns of movement. So all of that really comes uh, together when, when I, I decide on the kind of, um, also on the, on the storyboard itself of the film. So the, the architecture itself also, um, I allow it to suggest the characters. Um, and then all these things sort of come together. But uh, I have been working with um, uh, cinematographer Mark Carey for over 10 years. And I, for example, you know, I, it's, it's, it's one of those collaborations that, you know, we really do try to do then recce's together, which are, be, be, you know, becoming extremely difficult to do, obviously for, you know, as the world has unshrunk. Um, and, you know, carry out all these things. And also the problem is that I, I come from a wrong country. I'm Slovenian. We do not have an art system. Uh, our film fund does not support artist moving image. I do not work with a gallery. So, um, 
you know, and, and all these things that could be seen as like utter hindrances, I kind of decided to use them as just parts of the way of how we make projects happen. And that means that, you know, I am really celebrating the flexibility and the freedom we have. And, you know, that suggests also, you know, the mode of operation. So if, if you know, when we were trying to get access to the UN or to the uh, French communist headquarters or, you know, to an international airport, in a way, just being sort of authentic to the story, again, kind of going back to kind of just, you know, script writing, you know, script, script construction, similar thing, just being really authentic to the story and why it needs to be told. And, you know, when we're looking at these sort of power mechanisms of these sort of state institutions and, you know, kind of international um, power brokers on top of food chains, it's really interesting because every single time I'm really humbled to see that there has not been many attempts to try and come into, um, into a dialogue with them, uh, also into a critical dialogue. And kind of say, look, here's my team, here's my cinematographer, here's my script advisor, here's my architect, here's two researchers. And we want to be looking critically at your building or archive. Can we do that? Um, and would you become an interlocutor on this project with us? And I'm always, not always, but many times really, really amazed that they are up for it. And this still fills me with joy and utopianism that, you know, there still is space for this critical thought, for, you know, kind of challenging these kind of really rigid structures that we all see are failing, but, you know, to, to, to challenge them and, you know, perhaps you know, see them, how they can read themselves in a different way. So for example, I'll give you a really, really kind of more clear example than, than this kind of, um, kind of walking around the, the, the pot. Um, so the, the United Nations uh, with whom we have worked on this last project, um, they, so the building itself has been initially created from donations from member states in the, you know, late 1920s, 30s for the League of Nations. So obviously this is an extremely colonial European time. So all these gifts were, you know, they're extremely coded and, um, you know, politically problematic. So there would be Belgian tapestries representing supposedly the, the, the peoples of the world where, you know, all the, um, all the exotic women are naked, the European ones are clothed. And this is a tapestry that's hanging outside of the, um, the Security Council. Um, which is also in itself extremely coded. So it's, it's gilded in this like crazy frescoes, basically on steroids of this kind of muscular bodies kind of falling into tombs. And it kind of looks like a cartoon version of, of a James Bond villain's lair, you know, not of a kind of security council of the UN. And, and it's, you know, but they cannot, again, it's, this is the paradox, they cannot return these gifts. So this is another question, what do you do? Do you now take them down? Do you put them into the museums? And this is now, again, the discussion that we're having now with monuments, you know? What do you do with this? And in, in, in terms of the United Nations and the Palace of Nations, what is quite interesting as a kind of anthropological study is that actually Qatar and UAE are coming in with new gifts, which are, you know, the new meeting chambers, the new halls, and they are now rewriting this colonial European space. Um, 
with you know designs which are obviously celebrating the desert and there would be you know white leather chairs that look like Bedouins and the desert a blue sky that's supposedly you know kind of representing the kind of real real time projection of the sky back at home and and it's interesting because you kind of really see this sort of um kind of stalemate of you know um the 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 palace not knowing how to deal with this problematic past and rather than dealing with it they're just allowing the new one to come and erase it um but you know again you know these are just all these sort of moments for um you know, for, 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 for new activation of political thought. And, you know, also, uh, you know, as, as we are where we are, I think, you know, I firmly believe that it's really necessary to relook at soft power, at, you know, not just bilateral relations, but, you know, in case of UN, the multilateral relations and how does culture also play as a pawn in this construction? You know, how are we as culture producers going to, 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 to work this out? And is it still possible to make this kind of large scale complex projects especially speaking about film because you know now that you know the bigger productions can go ahead because they can afford to you know bring a set you know for six to eight weeks and you know quarantine it and go, go forward with it but all these smaller scale productions are you know they really are at a big risk of you know if nothing else losing uh, a long not even momentum but like a long period of of you know and, and also because of that, it's audiences, because the audiences will go to other forms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it, it's interesting to see how things, you know, they are crumbling and everybody is sort of panicking because nobody obviously can see into the future. But I mean, now, of course, it's really an obligation to talk about how those things might reconstitute themselves as well. Um, because there is, you know, among among the fear and sort of uncertainty, there is enormous opportunity. And I think in a sense, the way, you know, you, you go about your work is, I don't know, it's more in line perhaps with those, those future opportunities in a way. Um, and, and to keep moving forward in this, in this sense of certainly collaboration, but, um, you know, the, the irony of course, is that, all of these bids for nation building and this creation of this sort of nationalistic tendency we're seeing is, is like backfiring in so many sort of terrifying ways. Um, and so like a lot of people, I, you know, the work I encounter, I think, okay, it had its place when it was made, but then I think of the place it might have, you know, in the future um with with other built-in resonances that are going to happen you know because of what happens between now and then um and and that for me is what makes your work i mean one of the many things that makes your work so enticing and so exciting um because i i agree with you that this complexity is sort of um people are a little afraid of it um, in a sense, um, and and this this way in which you sort of dive in headfirst is is really refreshing, you know. Because again, as we were talking about, the structures innately not set up for that, um, and I think you just have to be very fortunate in 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 who you you know sort of meet along the way. Um, just to wrap up, I'm, I I also just really like you to talk about 
speaking of soft power, this, this female presence in all of your work. Um, it's so anti-intuitive in so many ways that what is most male um, in your work, what is so, sort of more, um, how to say, identifiably masculine is represented by the female voice and body. Um, and this is something that you've done throughout all of your work with, with very little exception. Um, can you talk a little bit about why that's so important to you to place a female voice and body in such an unusual context? Um, because the, I mean, we can get into a whole other discussion about this, but the female presence and voice and body is usually one of, um, you know, it's just another raw material. It's just another, you know, thing to sort of, uh, you know, massage into, into someone else's vision, usually that of a male. Um, so if you could just talk about that a little bit, I'd be very interested to hear what you have to say about that. Well, initially it really started with this, um, sort of duality I found, or not duality, but the, or the kind of mirroring, um, of this idea of having to, at the same time, seduce and at the same time adequately represent or even protect that the female body and architecture have, especially when it comes to national representation. So if one looks at, um, I, I quite like to always look at these sort of world expositions in the 20th century because they were this like really nice, clear, symbolic representation of national competition. And every pavilion, um, you know, from the kind of early 20th century onwards until the 50s, really, the kind of mid-40s, had their obligatory female nude in front of it. And, and I found this just, just so shocking because this was like completely without, um, you know, w w w without um, exceptions. And, you know, it's, it's this whole idea of also, you know, the uh, allegory of mother nation that a female body has to carry, uh, you know, and kind of be a mother and a seductress is kind of also what is expected uh, on one hand from these sort of national pavilions that had to, you know, seduce the international audience to come and see what a country has to offer, but also it's what an artistic practice has to do. So this was um, initially this kind of like triad that I was kind of quite interested in and kind of looking at effectively um, culture as this uh, vehicle of, you know, seducing, but at the same time giving a very firm ground for belonging. And that's that paradox and going back also to what a good film has to do or what a good script, how you're going to sell it, is that it has to be something totally new, but you must feel that you know, you know it, you know, it kind of feels homely, but it yet it still, you know, surprises you. Um, and then, and I, as I was kind of starting with, with the research quite early on, and as I started delving into the archives of this kind of nation building discussions surrounding the choices of which artists, which films, uh, you know, which, which architects would be chosen for, you know, any of the kind of European um, kind of great uh, kind of national presentations, Obviously, there are no women there, obviously, but it's even worse um, if they are present. And I've, I found this like uh, not only in, so in, in Yugoslav archives and also German archives. On a few occasions, it was written so you would have, when you have the transcripts, you would have the, the surnames and the names of the men. And you would have a female voice from the background says. 
Um, <laughs> and this was a stenographic note. And I just couldn't believe it because also these, these discussions, they were on, you know, really high end levels. Mm -hmm. So obviously the women there had the authority to speak and to be heard mm -hmm. and the authority of opinion making, but, you know, they were still not present. And when I did the Tear Down and Rebuild, which was a film shot in the former Palace of Federation in Belgrade, which is um, kind of, which was the, kind of, again, a kind of a version of a Yugoslav parliament built in the 60s, just on time for the non-aligned conference. All the artworks in there, so that had to announce this new aesthetic, all the two-dimensional artworks are very abstract. They're, you know, they're very in line with what the West was doing. But all the sculptures in the space are of not only female nudes, but highly eroticized female nudes. And it's just this schism that somehow nation building does not want to kind of, you know, step away from this patriarchal mm -hmm. um, space of construction. And it is just, you know, it's, it's, it's really like this, 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 this virus that you cannot get rid of. So I guess it's kind of, you know, that was always this idea of, you know, um, kind of bringing back the female body as an activator of this sort of feminist reading of nation building. Um, because I'm always looking for, you know, missing histories or archival holes or archival lacks. And I'm actually asking the questions of why do we have these holes? So feminist in that sense, you know, so it's, it's really kind of, you know, maybe the female body is one of them, but the others are also, you know, missing dance performances, missing, uh, you know, political styles. And, you know, how does history erase that which is, you know, not in line with the dominant narration that's expected for the mm -hmm. citizen. Thank you so much, Yasmina. This was an amazing talk. And I really, I love listening to you. I, I really think your work is extraordinary. I've really honestly never come across anything quite like it. Um, and um, I, I appreciate deeply your, your time spent with me here today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lucid Dreaming. This podcast was recorded on September the 7th in the year of 2020. Lucid Dreaming is a production of Lona Studio with the host Pamela Khan. We will be back with a conversation next week with our guest Zinzi Minot. If you like our podcast, please do spread the word. Tweet about it, shout about it, tell your friends, and subscribe on iTunes, Google, SoundCloud, or Spotify. Goodbye, Goodbye dreamers. dreamers.